So today we are in 2 Corinthians 11, 31 through 12, 10, an incredible passage. In fact, this chapter 12, um, 1 to 10, really kind of hits the highlight. If, if you were only going to read one little 10-verse piece of Corinthians and get the message of Corinthians, it's chapter 12, 1 to 10. And so we're going to go through that um, I kind of think I bit off more than I can chew by taking all these verses, but we'll try to cover it. In honor of God's word, though, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? From 1131. Uh, actually, it's verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my behalf I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that I, it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we've been, um, for the last, oh, I don't know how many chapters, we've been... Uh, uh, reading about Paul's defense against the false teachers that had come to Corinth and their accusations against him. And, and he's doing this in an, in an effort to undermine that destructive teaching and remind the Corinthians of his godly behavior while he was with them that year and a half that he, that he first was in Corinth, as well as how much he sacrificed for them to, to convey the gospel to them. And that was a stark contrast, that sacrifice and sacrificial love and service and, and dedication was a contrast with the self-serving teachers and their arrogant behavior. Verse 31 again, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who is blessed forever knows I'm not lying. 
At Damascus, the governor under Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. So Paul returns to one last story of what he endured for the sake of Christ. When he was first converted, he went to the synagogues of Damascus. You know, he was converted on the road to Damascus and then uh, met Ananias and Ananias prayed for him, gave him the prophecy about how he was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He went into the wilderness of Syria for a time and uh, I think just went over the scriptures again to understand where he'd gotten it wrong. And then he went back to Damascus and taught in the synagogues and preached in the synagogues so powerfully convincing the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah that they decided they needed to kill him to stop this powerful preaching of Jesus as the Messiah. So they convinced the governor that Paul had to die and the governor had the gate watched so if they saw him try to leave, they would seize him. But Christians of Damascus did what I like to call the over the wall in a basket trick. Houses were often built into the upper walls, uh, exterior walls of the city. You know, the whole city had, had a wall around it. And so on the upper levels of the wall, rooms could be built into the wall and there'd be a window on the exterior to let light in and fresh air. And they got a basket big enough for Paul to stand in and tied ropes to it and lowered him down probably in the darkness of night so that he could escape. Verse one, I, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So Paul reiterates now for probably, I think this is the sixth time that boasting really accomplishes nothing. And yet he feels he has to because these false teachers have so influenced the Corinthians that he's forced to show even by worldly standards, uh, his life does not is, is superior to theirs and that he's more qualified than they are. He's, he's doing what it says in Proverbs 26, verse five, answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own conceit. He's given evidence of his sincerity, of his commitment by listing all the things he endured for the sake of the gospel. And now he's moving on to spiritual experiences. It seems the false teachers must have been boasting about their own personal ecstatic experiences. And so Paul condescends to their boasting and shares his own personal experience. And this is the only place you find this recorded in scripture, just right here in 2 Corinthians, starting at verse two. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. So Paul is speaking of himself. Now, how do we know that? Well, because later on he switches, he's speaking in third to third person and then he switches to first person a little later in verse seven. So we're pretty sure that Paul's describing his own personal experience, but out of humility, he refers to himself as that person. Some people think that this experience happened when he was stoned at Lustra, you know, on one of those uh, near-death experiences. But when we go back 14 years into the life of Paul, he's either in Tarsus or Antioch, somewhere, we're not sure exactly, somewhere in, 
in that vicinity when that at the time when Barnabas came to get him to help with all the converts. And so it couldn't have been that time at Lystra because he hadn't gone on missionary journeys yet. It may have been after one of the many lashings and beatings that he mentioned in the previous passage, but then again, it just may have been in a time of, of, of prayer. In the last 50 years, there have been thousands, literally thousands of accounts of people who clinically died and were revived and tell of an out-of-body experience. That Many books have been written on it now. One of the first I, I read was Life After Life. They can remember what was done and said in the operating room, even when they were flatlined. Sometimes they even describe things outside their operating room, what was happening in another room or something that was on the roof of the building. And after they check it out, they find it actually was as the person said. Some of them tell of, of leaving this realm and traveling through a tunnel with angels guiding them, bringing them to a warm and loving light at the end of the tunnel, who most people identify as Jesus. And he shows them a review of their life. The main events that stand out to them are times of selfishness and times of sacrificial love. Then, of course, they return, or we wouldn't have the accounts. But then their lives usually take a dramatic turn uh, to something more meaningful, something more um, loving and generous. But there are others who experience something like what we would call hell. They remember that as a child in Sunday school, they heard the gospel, and as they're beginning to feel this incredible torment, they call out to Jesus, and suddenly they're back in their body. And that changes the direction of their life as well. You better bet that does. But Paul's case here is so different from these accounts that we can read about. He was already living as a servant of God, he doesn't tell of a life review. He only shares that he heard things that cannot be uttered. I've read a number of accounts of people returning from being clinically dead, meaning that there was no heartbeat, and sometimes, in some cases, no brain waves as well, who saw glimpses of heaven, but they never heard something that they couldn't tell anybody about. They have trouble expressing it because they saw things that uh, there's nothing relate to in this world. But they never have a secret that can't be shared like the Apostle Paul did. Now, some people probably make those things up to sell books, but many of those who experience heaven or hell are afraid to speak about it because they are afraid of the reaction from people, thinking maybe that they're a little off. <laughs> As the ability to resuscitate people improves, these counts are be accounts are becoming more and more frequent and well-documented. In fact, uh, a, a couple of friends of mine have had this experience. Verse 4, And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast. So there are things that we're not ready to receive. Actually, um, Brother Ed read this passage in John 16. Jesus told his disciples, I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot hear them now. Some of those things that Paul was ready to bear, but, but the rest of us apparently are not. 
Maybe we would misinterpret them or misuse them. I, I sometimes wonder how many things God kept out of Scripture because he could foresee how it would be manipulated in the wrong way. Paul could keep a secret. And at that time, he was obviously in the Spirit. And that's why he could say that he could boast of that man, but not of himself. For he was not always in the Spirit. He may have been receiving encouragement about the reward that was awaiting him. Maybe that's what he saw in heaven, which would have been for him personally and not for others. And that may have helped him endure the suffering we read about several weeks ago. If you're in the Spirit, totally surrendered to the life of Jesus in you, you can boast about that man because it's the new man which consists of the life of Christ in you. But we dare not boast about ourselves as we're in the process of being sanctified. We have moments but even in those surrendered moments, it's the life of Christ in us that produces that fruit that remains. Our boast is only in our surrender, enabled by the grace of God, and therefore brings God glory. In the last half of verse 5, But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Paul makes a powerful redefinition of what strength really is. It's recognizing how weak we are. The weaker we realize ourselves to be, the more reliant we are upon God. It's that upside down reality of God's kingdom. It's totally the opposite of the way the world sees things. And yet, at the same time, we're told to judge with a sober judgment. In other words, words, we recognize our dependency on the Lord is the greatest of all strengths. We don't downplay the faith that God has given us, it's, but it's a matter of which life we are yielding to. So this upended the false teachers' um, boasting in their training, in their pedigree, in their own abilities, in their own strengths. Paul says... I am nothing, but Christ is everything. That's my strength. Humility is powerful because humility makes a way for the power of God and assures that he gets all the glory. I remember a time when I was asking the Lord in prayer for the gift of healing. I thought, how many could come to Christ if they, if they just saw these miracles take place in an unexplainable way? And my heart aches for those who have of chronic conditions. But I believe the Spirit spoke to my heart and said that that would ruin me. I'd become enamored with the gift and think more of the gift uh, and of myself than I should. Thank God for not answering all our prayers. Amen. Especially the ones that would be detrimental to us or to others. The call of Gideon, I think, illustrates this very well. There's a number of passages that illustrate it, but I like the call of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse, from verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, 
my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. But I will be with you. That makes all the difference. God chooses the weak so that he will get the glory and the person will know it was God and not them. But Gideon also illustrates how success can cause us to think more of ourselves than we should. After that amazing victory of his just 300-man army against this vast army of Midian, Gideon made an idol which became a snare to Israel. I heard a saying that really struck, stuck with me all my, I heard it when I was very young. If you think you can do it, you already blew it. You never see anyone in scripture respond to God's call on their lives by saying, you got the right man for the job, God, good choice. I'm up for it, good choice, God. Instead, they're like Moses who said, God, you got the wrong guy. I can't speak, 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 speak very well. Or like Isaiah, when God tried to call him, woe is me, and his mouth had to be sanctified before he could respond to God's call and say, here am I, send me. The Lord Jesus chose men who were common laborers. Peter's response to the call was, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Do you think Jesus called a tax collector and a Christian killer because they knew they could do the job? Paul calls himself the worst of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15, while at the same time having faith that God was working through his life. Verse 6, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think of me more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul was the one exception to picking the least as far as worldly standards go. He had the best education a Jew could have. He was devoted and sincere, but sincerely wrong. When he had the vision of the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, what he once took pride in became meaningless, for it had led him against the truth rather than to the truth. His credentials and zeal became his humiliation. Since his conversion, God had used him mightily, even performing many miraculous healings and deliverance from demons. He could boast about all that God accomplished through him because he was reporting the truth. But instead, he spoke of what he suffered. He did not want people to judge him by past accomplishments or by his ecstatic experiences, but rather by the fruit from his life and words. How many of us would say the same? It's not about what you or I have done in the past, no matter how special the accomplishment is, but rather judge us by what you see in us and hear from us. Let the person's life in your presence and their words that are an expression of their heart be the standard you use. In other words, judge people by the fruit of their lives, not what they say about themselves or even what others say about them. 
I don't think Paul wanted them to think of him as a super saint, but rather as a flawed man called by a merciful and gracious God who empowered him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He couldn't overemphasize the fact that the transformation was a miraculous display of grace and how great God's grace can be. That is to not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to accurately see how God was using Paul for God's glory. Verse seven, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. When God gives mortal men great gifts, there's a danger of that man becoming conceited. Paul recognized how uniquely God had blessed him with revelations and used him to spread the gospel, planting churches and making disciples. He was the one whom God was using to make the doctrines of, of the early church clear and the one who we read today to understand most of the Gospels, uh, the intention behind the Gospels. Even revealing what Paul calls the secret hidden for the ages, which is that God had always intended for Jews and Gentiles to make up the bride of Christ by becoming children of God through faith in Christ. To keep Paul's old nature in check, Humility was ensured by God allowing Satan to afflict him. And this teaches us a number of important lessons. The first is, as we read about in Job, Satan is on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. He loves to afflict, destroy, and kill. Imagine how bad the world would be if God turned him loose. And that's what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. Secondly, God will use his, that is Satan's, malevolent behavior for our good when necessary by letting that leash have a little slack. What we often see as a calamity has a divine purpose. Sometimes it's judgment. Sometimes it's to restrain us from fallen nature. But it's often through those afflictions that we grow and mature. And thirdly, conceit is dangerous. The Greek word means overbearing or self-exalting. When we begin to think that we have accomplished something of eternal value and take, it, take that glory for it, we're setting ourselves up for a catastrophic fall because pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And last, this tells us that humility is essential for our spiritual life to be effective. The more effective we are for God's kingdom, the greater the need for humility. And we've, we've seen that so clearly in the last 20, 30 years of, of leaders that, that have fallen, that, that were in the public eye and, and had such influence and yet had such a great fall. Just what this thorn in the flesh was, we don't really know for sure. Some charismatics claim it was persecution because they don't want to believe anyone with faith can be anything less than perfect health. 
The issue I have with this is the accounts of the saints in Scripture and since for the last 2,000 years who have suffered severe maladies. Persecution is something all who are in Christ experience, not just a select few. Many conservative commentators believe it was an eye disease that caused his eyes to bulge and affected his vision. On his first missionary journey, he went uh, into Pamphylia through the city of Perga, which was known to carry this eye disease. And every place we read about it, he stops in Acts, he always preaches in the synagogues. But in Perga, he didn't. He went on to Antioch. And so you wonder, what, what happened there? And then later, we read in Galatians that uh, he talks about an affliction in his flesh and then goes on to say that the church loved him so much they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him if they could have. And then he also authenticated the letter to the Galatians by writing, and he said, you see what, with what large letters I write implying that maybe his eyesight was not good. He had to write large to see it. But the fact that we really don't know for sure offers us a broad application for whatever we may be enduring. If we are following Christ and are not under the conviction of the spirit of some kind of sin or being in rebellion and therefore under discipline, then we can see affliction was allowed by God for our good. We may not understand what the purpose is, but we know that God is sovereign over all of our lives, over the details of our lives. And so he must be using it for his good and for our good as well. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weaknesses. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul went to the Lord three times in prayer for whatever this affliction was. It must have been something that really troubled him, something really hard to live with. Three times he sought the Lord. He'd seen others healed at his hands. Even his, just the sweat rag that he had was passed around and healed people. I don't think he lacked faith to be healed, that's for sure. But after the third time of pleading with the Lord, he got an answer. Now, I don't know why he didn't get it the other two. Maybe the third time he took time to listen to quiet his soul and be still and find out there was a reason for the affliction. You know, this parallels the three times that Jesus prayed in the garden for the cup to pass from him. And in both cases, the answer from God was no. It was a necessity. Whenever Christ says no to our desperate, passionate pleadings, the no is freighted with his perfect, compassionate goodness and love. You can count on that. When God spoke to Paul, what he spoke to Paul is a lesson for us all to hear. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I would guess that Paul was not really excited to hear that at first. <laughs> 
It meant people would mock his bulging eyes if that was the affliction. It meant people would say as they did to Jesus, physician, heal yourself. He may have thought it would distract people from hearing his message, but then the words must have sounded like a glorious promise. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you want the power of God perfected in you? Are you willing to pay the price? It may mean a weakness is revealed or an affliction that you have to live with. That doesn't sound inviting, but the power of Christ perfected in weakness sounds too glorious to comprehend. Realizing the amazing declaration God had given him, he burst out with, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If weakness means power of God and its perfection resting on me, I'll brag about how weak I am. Let the false teachers brag about how great and strong and how much revelations they've had. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. Can we embrace that concept? It's so different from the world. Do you want the perfect power of Christ to rest upon you? That word rest upon is uh, as a word that's used uh, in John 1, 14. Jesus is the word who was made flesh and tabernacled. It's the word tabernacle. It's a tent. You know how in the Old Testament, Moses would go to the tent of meeting and the Spirit of God in the cloud would come over and rest upon the tent. It, it's the word that means tent. Paul was saying the power of Christ will set up a tent over me, over my weaknesses. Some of us have asked and asked for some weakness to be removed from our lives. Would you stop for a moment and consider how that weakness humbles you? Do you see how it drives you to prayer to ask for God's help? And then maybe you'll see part of the reason why he hasn't taken it from you. It's so that the power of Christ can rest upon you. His power is perfected in our weaknesses. I think maybe we should stop right there and jump up and down for joy. Because we all know we have weaknesses, amen? Anybody here not have a weakness? I want to talk to you. <laughs> His power is perfected in our weaknesses. I think that's a glorious statement. It's an encouraging statement. We've been looking at our weaknesses all, all wrong. We thought God couldn't use us because of our weakness. Maybe it's some pattern in your brain or, or some temptation you keep struggling with, or maybe it's some physical thing and you think God can't use me because of that. God can use you because of that, because it drives you to him. It makes you trust in him. We thought God couldn't use us, but that's why he uses us. That weakness makes us humble, and that means God's power can 
tent over us. Hallelujah. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The literal translation of this verse gives a startling emphasis to it and, and makes it speak for itself with a force that we've probably never realized. Here it is. Therefore, I take pleasure in being without strength, in insults, in being in a pinch, in being chased about, in being cooped up in the corner for Christ's sake. For when I am without strength, then I am dynamite. Amen. Amen. Paul has given us a new perspective. It's heaven's perspective. He's shown us the need for humility. But in doing so, he's shown us how to be a powerful instrument of God. He's shown us why afflictions remain and the need for them. And now our challenge is to take this heavenly perspective and look at ourselves and others differently. Watch out for what the world esteems. It's almost always the opposite of what God approves. The humble Christian is dynamite in the hands of Jesus. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.